Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, each week, we like to bring you information that will transform your life, enlighten you, enhance your ability to be successful, give you insights in all areas of our life as we take a holistic approach to helping you as you listen to the secrets of success. And today is no exception. We are extremely pleased, but also have the privilege of having Dr. Loretta Bruning with us, who is also a professor at California State University. Loretta, thanks for being on the show with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Now, Loretta, you're an expert in the brain, the happy brain. You've written the book, Habits of Happy Brain. But before we get into your expertise, so everybody here is going to have to stay on and listen, love to hear your journey, Loretta, on where you started, where you grew up, and what were the sort of experiences in life to bring you to have a passion over helping others in this area in their life? Okay, good question. Um, well, I had a, a difficult childhood that I can actually talk about more than most people because I have very few relatives. Um, so I had a mother who was in great distress. Uh, mm. She had a, a very awful childhood, and she really had no um, no historical culture. Like, I mean, she came from such a bad background that there was never anybody who was doing any better. And so I learned to avoid her and to rely on myself. And I learned to read and while I was hiding from her in order to avoid conflict. So there's good skills there and there's bad skills. So what I say sort of um, humorously that I could read while someone is on the other side of the wall screaming and crying and blaming me for everything. So that gave me a lot of focus. Um, Now, how old were you at that time, Loretta? Oh, I mean, you know, it was never, you know, with my whole life, it was never. Mm. Um, so I actually went a different way in terms of learning not to try to rescue others. Um, one way of separating was, as many young people, I was going to save the world because I could not save her. And then over the years in various save the world type efforts, I realize that a lot of them are giving a person sort of a guaranteed income, but not really helping the world. And there's a lot of overlooking of the facts about some well-intentioned efforts. And Mm -hmm. so I decided not to invest more of myself in things that I thought didn't work in the same way that when I was young, I learned to rely on my own judgment rather than investing myself in courting my family's goodwill. (laughs) What part of the country did you grow up in, Loretta? 
Oh, um, Long Island, New York. I was born in Brooklyn, um, mm. as seems like such a huge percentage of the population was. And um, then, uh, yeah, I, I lived in New York until I moved to California um, later on. Okay, great. So now you're enjoying the West Coast versus the East Coast. Great. So you're, you're doing these, you're really filtering through sort of these helping modalities or mindsets. So what was your journey there? Did you, you learn to read? What did you do after high school? Did you go to university? I mean, what was, even though you had this environment of really destruction or not, certainly not encouragement, what, what do you think was one of the driving forces that you were able to overcome and move into these next steps? Hmm. Well, um, again, it's, that I had to meet my own needs. Um, a friend of mine used this expression that um, having trouble at home gives you incentive to push away from the dock. So it was not as if going home was a comfortable thing. It was like the worst state in the world. So mm. any number of rejections on the job market was preferable <laughs> to going home. So I was always out there trying, like I, I didn't have anything to lose. And so I actually did pretty well on the surface in many things. But then on the other hand, I lacked the ability in the workplace to go along with stuff in the way that's expected. So I was very good at getting my foot into various doors and then not doing very well once I got in the door, I was. And I wrote about this in detail, and I have a new book called How I Escaped from Political Correctness, and you can too, so I, I wrote the whole story of that. But I did, um, you know, I got, uh, I got a PhD, I spent a year in Africa, and I spent 25 years as a college professor. Now, you just skipped over a big chunk yeah. of your lifetime. So what, how did you get into university with Obviously, the family wasn't going to be helping you. What, was, what, what did you have to do? What were some of the characteristics and traits beyond what you've already shared with the audience that you really were embracing to get into school and then actually have study skills to be successful to go to the doctorate level? Yeah, this is really interesting. Um, first, I, I'll tell you a story, and it's in the book. When I was a junior in high school, I didn't even dare to think about my future because my mother vetoed everything I suggested. So I was so careful, but I was also like so motivated to get out of the house. So I got a part-time job because earning money was like an acceptable thing. I always did whatever I could do to get away from my mother uh, that was like acceptable. So doing homework was one thing that was acceptable. So I think on some level that I expanded my schoolwork to, as a, an acceptable way to insulate myself from her. Mm. And I never viewed myself as one of the smart kids, you know, in quotes, because I was not really socially comfortable and never ended up among the quote unquote smart kids. And yet when I was a junior, this guidance counselor called my parents in and my father couldn't go. My mother went and he told her that I was near the top of my class. And I was shocked. 
it never occurred to me. So on the one hand, I wasn't like trying for that external reward, but I was building the skills for it just inadvertently because I needed to focus my brain on something positive in a negative mm -hmm. environment. So that's what I've done since then, I would say, is really focus on the skills rather than looking for the external approval. Mm. And so we'll get into it here in the rest of the show about, you know, the strategies that no matter what environment you are in, that you help people to take charge of that uh, process for themselves. So you go in to get your doctorate. Where did you do your um, work in or where did you take your degree? Oh, I went to Cornell as an undergrad, and I, I got a State of New York scholarship and had a lot of part-time jobs. And then I did my grad work at Tufts, and there's a school called the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which is one of the network of, it's called Professional Schools of International Relations. And I know that sounds quite a bit different from what I do today. Um, it started with the saving the world idea, and I studied a good deal of psychology and also different cultures, and my interest in traveling the world and learning about different cultures finally led me to understand that the common core of human responses is overwhelmingly similar, both in the past and today, in different countries, the same junk goes on over and over. So instead of getting upset about it over and over, it's more fun to understand it. Well, let's use that as a segue, uh, Loretta, and, and shift into your book, you know, The Happy Brain. And, you know, you talk about serotonin and dopamine and oxytocin and endorphins. And, you know, we've talked about that on our show before. So frame it out for the listeners now. You just made a statement. These things happen everywhere, all over. The human condition has these sort of common things that are going on. And you saw that. You noticed that. But now we can do something about it. Just frame that out before we get into your steps that you have in your book. Sure. Uh, well, in my search, I did a lot of reading of self-help and psychology and I noticed little bits of information about the animal brain and the link of the neurochemicals that we have to what they do in the animal brain. And that's what made it all so obvious for me. And the animal brain is not designed for you to sit around feeling good all the time. Animals don't have a pantry or a refrigerator to get food from. They, have, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. They're constantly searching for rewards, for resources, and that's the job our brain is designed to do. And you're not meant to get the rewarding feeling, the happy feeling, until you do something that approaches meeting a need. That's the way our brain is designed to work. Wow. So let's now transition into, and, and this would apply to many of the listeners where we've we can have situations where we're just kind of negative, we're down, and you're suggesting that we can really take charge of this. Take us through the steps that you have in the habits of a happy brain and just help the listeners to embrace some of these strategies. So at the end of the show, they say, yeah, I can do that. Okay. So your brain is designed to reward you for survival steps, but it, de it defines survival in a quirky way. 
it um, it defines survival with neural pathways built from past experience. So that means anything that felt good to you before built a pathway that wires you to repeat that, and anything that felt bad to you before wired you with a pathway to avoid that. And mostly it's the pathways you built when you were young that counts because that's when a brain builds its infrastructure, its superhighway system. So what felt good to you or bad to you when you were young is not necessarily the higher wisdom that you're looking for, Mm. but in the state of nature, whatever feels good is actually good for you. So that's how our brains get wired. And when you understand that, then you can understand the conflict, the frustration, and the need to build in adjustments. But more important, why you have such a strong incentive to do something, even if it's not what you want to do, because that's the pathway you have. The other complicated part of this, the the quirk of our brain, is that um, your brain was naturally selected to promote your genes. So we have inherited our brains from people who kept their genes alive. And that's harder than you would think. And so most of human history, you know, lots of genes got wiped out. And then your ancestors managed to do what it takes to keep their genes alive all the way back. So that's a miracle. So you're descended from survivors, but the brain rewards you for promoting your genes more than it cares about keeping your body alive. And that's another reason why we do quirky things. So give us an example that might apply to that statement. Um, So I could give um, a simple example in the monkey world to start with. So a little monkey, um, animals leave home at puberty because it prevents inbreeding. And they don't consciously think that, but natural selection built a brain that avoids inbreeding. So imagine a little adolescent monkey terrified of leaving home, but getting kicked out of its natal group and or having the, and you could actually see how a teenager would have that attitude of, I'm getting out of here. These people are all stupid. I know better. And yet at the same time, you're terrified Uh, to be out there without a herd. So a young brain learns, like, how can I build new connections to feel safe while giving up on my early foundation? It's very threatening. And whatever works when you are an adolescent, that's how, how you're wired to approach the world. And everyone has the same issue. So no sense, you know, categorizing and pointing fingers. We're all doing it. So it helps to look at yourself and say, so what did I learn when I was young about how to make my way in the world, how to find safety, how to get rewards, and that's what I'm doing today, whether I like it or not. Mm. So that really becomes that subconscious driver or drivers, plural, for us as far as the how the past goes. You know, there's lots of research, Rita, and interested in your take on it about what age we are anchored by. You know, there's some that say by 12, some are saying by eight. Is there an age they say that we've really accumulated a lot of these sort of pathways and patterns? Yeah, I'm so glad though to hear you say eight or eight, um, 12 because what I'm hearing is 25. And I think that's very harmful. Like the idea that 
kids can be irresponsible until 25 and then they're suddenly going to change. That's um, a lot of this information is coming from people who are selling something and they do not have your best interest at heart. They have the best interest of the theory that they're selling. Mm. So what counts here is a substance called myelin, which coats neurons the way um, an insulated wire is coated with plastic. And that makes some of your neurons super efficient, a hundred times more efficient and just, just like a wire. So myelin in the brain is abundant before age eight and again during puberty. So anything that happens to you before age eight and during puberty, anything that happens to you repeatedly and emotionally, that's what builds the super highways of your brain. Now you're not conscious of these highways, but when you use myelinated pathways, things come to you so effortlessly that it feels manageable and it feels true. When you, tr when you depart from your myelinated pathways, you feel like, oh, I'm not sure this is right. I'm not sure if you could do it, if I can do it. So that's why we default so easily to our, um, our foundation that we built before age eight and during puberty. Well, there we go. So both uh, timelines kind of fit. Yeah, uh, that we were talking about, and that's you know that's interesting information. So now I have these conditions. What are some of the steps now that you are going to teach us, doctor? As far as I, I want to change. I want to adjust. I want to be happy in a negative situation. So what are those steps that that the listeners can start to consider? Sure. So you can build a new pathway. I call it blazing a new trail through your jungle of neurons. So imagine you're in the Amazon jungle and you want to take a new trail instead of going on a highway that already exists because the highways go to these yucky cities and that's not where you want to go. So you try to blaze a new trail and it's very hard. Like just taking one step is a tremendous amount of effort. And then if you go back to that trail you blaze the next day, it's all grown over and your effort was for nothing. But if you blaze the same trail every day for 45 days, you will, a new pathway will establish and then you can flow and then it'll start feeling more normal and natural to take that path. So how can you do that? Well, first, you have to be very specific about the new behavior you want. Don't expect to change the whole world, but just think the first thing, what would I like? And I can help you design that. And then when you decide that you're going to take a step toward um, doing that every day without fail for 45 days. And it's not going to be some huge step, but some small step that you're sure you can do. So let's say I'm trying to manage a, a, a irritability response, some, something in my life that irritates me. And you're now going to coach me personally to adjust that uh, trigger to just be cool and calm instead of irritated, um, what, how would you coach me to, to do something like simple like that? Great. Um, so when we stimulate our happy chemicals, it shifts us away from our unhappy chemical, which is cortisol. So cortisol is the perception that you're facing a survival threat. And in the animal brain, Disappointment is a survival threat for reasons we can explain. 
So we can feel like our survival threat is threatened all the time. We're never going to uh, we're never going to be free from that feeling. So it's useful to look for a way to stimulate your happy chemicals, although not to constantly chase them and expect to be in a state of ecstasy all the time either. So it's better to understand what stimulates the happy chemicals. So if we start with dopamine, dopamine is the good feeling that you're just about to get a reward. So if you imagine a monkey sees a piece of ripe fruit in a tree and has to make a lot of decisions to get to that tree and it takes a huge investment of effort. So when a monkey finally gets there and is just about to grab that fruit. So every step along that way stimulates dopamine. And that's the good feeling we have when we believe that we're approaching rewards. Now, when you have an irritability response, it's because you've noticed something that seems like it's going to block you from getting rewards. And in your mind, you're giving that person or thing like the power to block you. It's like, oh my gosh, I've climbed toward this fruit and now I'm not going to get it. So the alternative is to imagine that you're in a tree full of mangoes and there are lots of different ways to get different mangoes. And if you don't get one, you'll get another. And one way or another, you'll get them rather than investing that other person with the power to threaten your survival. So Mm -hmm creating the positive image of um, one thing I always do. I never take a step until I have a plan B. So it's like, okay, I'm going to do this. And if it doesn't work, I'm going to do that. So then I don't feel like a disappointment will undermine my survival, but a disappointment will just shift me to the plan B that I already have confidence in. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And then as we continue down your steps, Ian, that you have in the book, what are the next ones that you would like to share with the listeners? Well, let's talk about the other happy chemicals. So we often hear about survival needs, and alas, it's much more complex than people would like to think because animals have a lot of conflict in their social groups. And our brain chemicals are inherited from earlier animals, as are the structures that control our brain chemicals. So dopamine is the feeling that you're about to get a reward that meets your needs. And in the modern world, your physical needs are so well met that we tend to focus on survival needs, but that can lead a person to sort of obsess over survival needs and feel like their survival is threatened by a social disappointment. So that's what becomes a problem. So instead, let's focus on the positive that we can wire in. So we have two different survival needs, the oxytocin and the serotonin. So oxytocin is belonging to a herd. So mammals survive through safety in numbers, and we often hear about acceptance and belonging, and that stimulates oxytocin because it's that feeling that you're safe from a potential predator because you can rely on this group. Now, in a state of nature, um, you don't release oxytocin all the time because it would be dangerous to trust something that's not trustworthy. So your brain is making careful decisions about when to trust. And also, your brain would rather be 
leaving the group and seeking greener pasture than sticking with the herd all the time. So we always have difficult decisions to make. We want to enjoy oxytocin by having acceptance and belonging, but then we want to enjoy dopamine by seeking greener pastures, and we want to get away from bad group members who get on our nerves. So um, that's why we look so hard for ways to enjoy that good feeling of oxytocin without other things that get on our nerves. So it helps to have a variety of different oxytocin tools so that we can always feel like we have the power to stimulate it ourselves rather than feeling like someone else has the power to sort of cut you off and deprive you of it. What would be some of those examples of some tools I might uh, look at for that oxytocin strategy? So what, what would be a couple of options for me to consider? Uh, so a very simplistic one is massage, which uh, stimulates it. And um, it's a little bit of investment, although there are good self-massage techniques. But the idea is that touch stimulates oxytocin. And um, any way that you can get touch in your life. But the bottom line is it has to be touch combined with trust because touch with a lack of trust feels horrible. So that's part of the oxytocin experience is trust. Now, another one is how can you build trust in your life in small steps? So if I, it, it would be nice if I said, oh, I just want to have somebody in my life that I trust with everything, that I trust completely. Well, that sounds nice, and maybe it seems like everybody else has that on television and in the movies. But, you know, I looked for it for years, and in reality, I never found it. And then I thought, duh, this is the child's view of life. A child wants to have some force that I can trust absolutely, somebody who knows better than me about everything, but it's just not realistic. So instead of kicking myself about not having that, I can reward myself, I can applaud myself for having a variety of different resources in my life. So when something goes wrong, I say to myself, who do I know whose opinion I would trust on this one issue? I may not trust them on other things, but, but I, maybe I would want to listen to them on this issue. And then I'll think of three people so I don't have to maybe feel like any one person's judgment uh, overpowers my own. So that's an example of being a healthy, responsible adult while still having oxytocin. I, I'm not sure if you were aware of the research where they were talking about if you have a hug with, let's say, a family member or I'm hugging my wife or whatever, is that if that hug lasts 20 seconds or more, then you start moving into the oxytocin range. Uh, yes, I do hear about this, and, and it is good. However, I feel like that so much of, excuse me for using this expression, so much of the touchy-feely research that comes out of academia um, overlooks the fact that if you are in relationships that you are forcing yourself into because you're told that you should and you really have bad feelings about those relationships. I think that creates such an internal conflict that I would like help to help people um, understand and manage that internal conflict rather than feeling like, 
well, something must be wrong with me because I've hugged my partner for 20 seconds and yet they still get on my nerves. <laughs> and your response to that, so you're meaning, well, yeah, my what you're suggesting is with uh, anything forced is going to negate the uh, oxytocin response. Well, no, because we do have to force ourselves because we do need it. But it's important to know that my neural pathways are built from my life experience and your neural pathways are built from yours. So each of us is going to see the world differently. So in order to have trust in our lives, we have to define trust in a way that has healthy boundaries that says, just because I trust you, I don't have to substitute your judgment for mine. So my judgment about my life is okay. Your judgment about your life is okay. Um, and we can trust each other and still respect each other's ability to not um, not agree with each other on everything. We don't have we don't have to agree with anyone on everything. If we look for that again, we can say, well, that's natural to want someone you agree with on everything. That's natural because our brain is built in childhood, but we're not going to get it. So we're better off understanding why instead of mourning that all the time. This is the coming of age. Okay. Well, thank you for that. That's a great clarification. So what is the next steps on that? I know you also mentioned serotonin. Yes. Is that next in our, in our process here or? Uh, yes. Our... yes. Go ahead. So serotonin is the difficult one that no one talks about. So studies done in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, well, first, for millennia, humans have lived alongside animals, and humans have known that animals were quite nasty to each other. And in addition to being nasty and violent, they're also quite hierarchical. They are status seekers. Now, this is so uncomfortable and so conflicting with the academic worldview that peace and love and harmony and equality are the state of nature, that all its research was just ignored. And now if you mention it, you're just ignored. So I was fortunate that I could take early retirement and I decided instead of seeing these people as gatekeepers that I would just say what I thought while I still had some electricity in me. And so I was fascinated to see that animals have constant conflict for the one-up position because the one in the one-up position gets the, um, the food and the mating opportunity. And when you get the one-up position, your brain releases serotonin. It's, you could say it's your reward for assertiveness, for asserting yourself. And the bottom line is that it's not aggression. So it doesn't mean we should be aggressive, but it means that when you assert yourself and prevail, that you feel good, serotonin is released, but it only lasts for a few minutes. And that's why we're always looking for a way to stimulate more. Now, we can drive each other nuts as a result. And I'm not saying we should be this way, but in fact, we are this way. So if we don't get it, then we're going to always be mad at other people doing it to us. We're going to feel like people are doing it to us because we don't realize that we're doing it too because we want the serotonin too. Mm. So then what's my strategies around it? What are you teaching us to kind of manage this interaction of serotonin sure. then? 
Sure. So it's very difficult in daily life, which is why so many people think they can get this feeling out of a pill bottle. So it's difficult because how can you put yourself up without putting others down? Because if you put others down, um, you're sneered at and you can get into conflict. So how can you put yourself up without putting others down? So I use two different examples. So one is I'm always thinking of how much better my life is than my ancestors. And in that way, I can feel like, boy, I, I really have a good life that I can appreciate. Um, for example, oh, my God, we were watching the latest episode of Big Bang Theory and um, uh, Bern, Bernice, Bernadette was, you know, she's having a baby. And then we're just reading about Queen Victoria, like who had nine babies. And then I was just reading about Hawaiian missionaries. This woman has 10 babies and like she has to slop the pigs when she wakes up in the morning and again before she goes to bed at night. And like in the past, people work so hard and everybody thinks life is hard today. Like they're delusional. So that's one example. So another example, let's imagine I go to a restaurant and the maitre d' is seating me at a table. Now, the natural response that many people have is, why did he give me the bad table? And they go around and look at other tables and go, oh, they got the good table. Why did they get the good table? And that's the sort of the high school neural network that people have, like other people are at the good table. So in reality, if you got one of those other tables, you would start finding the flaws of that table. So why not just focus on the positives of the table you're at? So wherever I'm seated, I'm like, okay, what are the advantages of this table? I'll just give you another simple example. Like I, when I would eat with a certain person in my life, no matter what I ordered, that person would always not like what she had and like what I had, making me feel guilty. Like, geez, you, you had the same menu as I had. And now you're jealous of what I ordered after you, like, like this is how people are. So you have to have some distance and say, you know what? They're responsible for their feelings. I'm mm -hmm. responsible for mine. I'm going to celebrate my pleasure in the meal that I ordered and not be taken inventory of other people's happiness. So re yes, so really distancing ourselves and not, What's the word? Embracing, owning other people's stuff. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Awesome. And when we think about your sort of, you know, transforming the, <laughs> the brain to stop these negative uh, thoughts. Now we have about 10 minutes left in the show, Loretta. What would be some, and I want to spend just a moment on your new book before we get to the end. So if we're wrapping this kind of, you know, switching your brain and habits for the happy brain, uh, what what would be sort of some closing comments around that for a few minutes? Okay. So in order to build a new pathway, after you decide the new behavior that you want to focus on, you have to repeat it every day for 45 days for electricity to start to flow. And when you do that, it will feel weird at first because when electricity, when the neurons aren't already connected, it's so hard to get electricity to flow that you feel like you're doing something wrong, even though in your conscious brain, you've chosen this and you think it's right. So it helps to know that it's going to feel wrong 
and make an agreement with yourself, you know, commit to yourself that you're going to do it anyway, and sort of plan a reward for yourself. I mean, you don't want to be constantly rewarding yourself with a cookie, you know, every few minutes, but maybe the cookie that you were going to have anyway, don't have it until first you've done your daily practice in whatever is that new step that you want to build. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the, a lot of the research shows, Loretta, that if I skip a few days in between the 45, I have to start the time over. Is that correct? Um, yes, I agree with that. However, um, this has been a little bit uncomfortable with um, people who are offering 28-day rehabilitation services. So um, I am reframing the, the number. So here's a new way to look at it. You're building a new behavior that you're wanting to repeat for the rest of your life. So the exact number of days, let's say, is not important right now. What's important is that it feels wrong at first, but the more you do it, the more the neurons will collect and electricity will flow. So if you have a 28-day cycle, think of it this way. The first seven seven days, you're going to spend really understanding the circuits you have, deciding on the new circuit you want to build, trying to design a circuit that's a leaf on a branch that you already have because that'll make it easier to wire in. So how can I stimulate my dopamine, oxytocin, or serotonin in a way that builds on something I already like? Then I'm going to do it for 21 days, repeat it for 21 days, And once I've done that, hooray, then I'm going to start another 21 days, okay? And then electricity will flow, and I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. Awesome. Awesome. Great. Thank you for that clarity. And that really helps the listeners to say, okay, I can chunk this. I can focus on that. And really, if you're listening, what Loretta is saying is make sure you are intentional with this plan. This is not going to happen by accident. And then if we wrap up sort of this segment, Loretta, uh, what would be sort of your final comments around the uh, happy brain? Well, let me acknowledge somewhat realistically the unhappy side, okay? So cortisol is the brain chemical that warns you of a potential threat. Our brain is designed to prioritize bad feelings over good feelings because something bad can kill you in an instant, Whereas doing without a reward, you can survive longer. So it's understandable that like your brain wires you to not touch a hot stove twice. So anything that hurt you before, you're trying to avoid it again. So you can end up avoiding pretty much everything, right? Because almost anything can remind you of something that hurt you before. So this is the stumbling block that's understandable. And and this is more of the focus of, My second book, um, well, I I won't um, number them because I have my commercial books and my self-published books. But I have a book called The Science of Positivity, which helps you um, focus only three minutes a day on something positive. And this is not the same as gratitude. What I explain is because you're sort of focusing on believing in your own power and your own steps rather than just passively receiving and, and if you do it three times a day for one minute to wire yourself to for the good, because your brain is already wired to look for the bad. Mm. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Now, before I forget, Loretta, and I never forget, but um, 
how if the listeners want to get a hold of you before I just want to spend a few minutes with your politically correct new book, uh, how might they get in touch with you if they want to learn more about your work? So my website is innermammalinstitute.org. Um, lots and lots of free resources there and lots of different ways to contact me. Awesome. And you're on LinkedIn as well. And so if people want to look you up there and your last name is spelled B-R-E-U-N-I-N-G and first name Loretta. So you should be able to find her there and reach out for us. Now, Loretta, you've got this uh, new book on uh, political correctness. If you can capture that in about three or four minutes, what are you uh, sharing with us in that? Sure. Um, So I have two self-published books. Uh, That's one of them, How I Escaped Political Correctness, and You Can Too. And I have another self-published book called iNAML, Why Your Brain Links Status and Happiness. So they both focus deeply on the biology uh, um, in the animal world of our emotional responses. Uh, iMammal has a lot more animal examples, and political correctness helps us understand how our um, political thoughts and expectations have a biological nature. So each of the happy and unchemicals we talked about is very much um, offered to you by political correctness. So, for example, we talked about acceptance and belonging. So political correctness is a fast, easy way to get that. Um, oxytocin. Uh, now, serotonin, political correctness, is a fast, easy way to put yourself in the one-up position by making accusations about the morality of others. Uh, political correctness is a fast, easy way to relieve cortisol because it tells you um, all your problems are caused by X and we're going to fight X together and everything will be great in this new utopia. Um, what about dopamine? Political correctness offers you rewards. It says, just follow us, do what we say, and then you'll get all the rewards. So you don't have to rely on the frustrations you may have had about your own rewards. Mm -hmm. So um, I was tempted by this path like everyone else. It was completely surrounding me, especially because I built my world, let's say, on my teachers more than my family. And this was the only acceptable thought process, and and I'm sort of ashamed to think about how I not only sucked it in, but I pushed it onto my students and my kids. So then I, one moment, I realized that I was actually lying to make the world fit, the politically, politically correct worldview, which is effectively that the good guys are all good and the bad guys are all bad and you're not ever allowed to see any facts that don't fit that template. And when I saw that I was willing to lie to make it true and I was terrified of not doing that because there were a a real risk of being ridiculed, shunned and attacked. And I just finally got the courage to say, this is not what I want. I'm not giving my brain to the gatekeepers of political correctness, and I'm going to think what I think and know what I know, whether it's politically correct or not. And and thank you for that, for Loretta. By the way, you have somebody who is, agrees with you. That's me. And in that, um, what one sort of encouragement or strategy would you give to the listeners around embracing 
this path that you've taken that you haven't already shared? Yes. So I call it the sliding scale. So to be realistic, I'm not saying that people should go around, you know, pushing their opinions and thinking I'm right, you're wrong. That's what we already have. So the idea is we do want to get along with people of different perspectives. And so on your sliding scale, you are constantly making decisions about how much you want to share with others. But in exchange for that, you're also making decisions about how much you want to be on the receiving end of what they want to share with you. And so my strategy is I go to the bathroom when people start imposing their political views on me. <laughs> um, and <laughs> when, um, when I get back from the bathroom, either the conversation has naturally ended or the person has figured out that I don't want to have that kind of relationship, or it's time for me to either renegotiate the relationship or, or just remember a dentist appointment that I have. <laughs> and I, I have to say that recently I went to the bathroom twice for the first time because first I went, and then when I came back, someone was unloading their politics on my husband, and I didn't want to hear it, but I didn't want to appear to be dominating my husband, so I just went back to the bathroom. So just vacate the space and yeah. um, basically remove yourself from uh, that dynamic as best as you can. Politely for a short time so that you don't have a hair trigger. And the way I explain it is, Talking about how much you hate X, Y, and Z has become the equivalent of talking about the weather. It's just a social bonding ritual. And my responsibility, if I don't want to be in that negative space, to offer a different way of bonding. And then either the person goes for it or, or doesn't. But first, I give them time, and then I offer an alternative. And if that doesn't work, then I decide you know, how much is it worth to have this in my life? Well, thank you for that, Loretta. Now, as a closing comment, I'm going to give you an opportunity. What one item or two items of wisdom through all your work would you share with the listeners to encourage them today? Okay. Um, encourage them. <laughs> um, Inspire them uh, beyond yeah. what we've already covered. Yeah. Oh, inspire. Well, so you are the best judge of what's good for you. Don't view other people as gatekeepers. My biggest hobby is reading biographies. And I was very surprised to see that most of the people we might think of as successes were not appreciated in their lifetime. So if they were waiting to get applause and high fives, they would not have done what they did. Instead, they persevered despite not getting a positive reaction. So, um, I mean, you don't want to necessarily beat your head against the wall and always assume other people are wrong, but you do need to not view other people as, as anything other than possibly their old circuits and their urge for acceptance and belonging rather than the absolute truth. Well, on that note, uh, Dr. Loretta, thank you very much for taking the time to be on our show today. Thank you so much. Well, folks, you've heard it from uh, Dr. Bruning, is that, you know, really we have a responsibility. We have an opportunity 
to shift our mindset, to move from negative into be positive. Go and find out more from her site uh, and be able to get her, get her work so that you can learn about the steps so you can shift that over time. It does take work. It is intentionality. It isn't something that where you snap your fingers. However, it will pay off. Now, as we end in most shows, thank you for listening. And if you like what we're doing, can you share? Can you pass it on? Can you leave some positive comments in the narrative in whatever platform that you are listening in? Thank you again for participating and being a listener of Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.